Hey, everybody. Welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Aitzor. And I'm John Booker. And together, we're going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. And I am so excited about what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Sometimes, like when you're working on a creative idea and you think about what could we do? Like, what would be fun to us to do? I remember we both had seen a movie that we loved and we had talked about previously. And what are the chances that we might actually have someone associated with the movie we could talk to? Can you believe it? We actually got to sit down and talk to one of the stars of the movie Blind Spotting, an incredibly important mythological film that I think very few people understand as a mythological film. Yes. And we not only get to delve into the mythology of this film, we get to talk to one of the stars, but also someone who wrote the film. The person who the genesis of this film came from, Mr. Rafael Casal. Oh, I could not be more excited to share this interview with everyone. Let's talk a little bit about blind spotting. Yes. Because I remember, like, as a child, this concept of blind spotting. Mm. Like, there was like a book in elementary school or something where we were supposed to look at this picture of a vase, and the, the teacher would say, How many people see a vase? Or how many people see two faces staring at each other? I didn't know what it was called. Of course, because this is a very psychological term. Right, right. I had not really thought about that image of the vase Mm -hmm. until I saw the movie just a year or so ago. And that idea, that psychological idea of how we can look and see something, and then we can reverse our minds and see the other thing, but we can't see both things at the same time. Exactly. What does the concept mean to you? Blind spotting. Blind spotting is, it's so interesting when, because that image is actually used everywhere for this term and in the movie specifically. And it is difficult. It's the realization that it is difficult to change your point of view. And once you do, you can't see the other one, but there's always one that you lean towards. And the way that Raphael Casal and David Diggs did this in this movie and layered it in these two characters of Miles and Colin, while also examining the culture of Oakland, of the gentrification of Oakland, what it means to be a black man yeah. and, and this world, it's so layered yeah. that it almost makes me mad at how well they did this. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm right. so jealous <laughs> of the fact that they were able to take this psychological concept and make a very deep layered film that's also entertaining and fun and makes you think. And yeah. uh, I love it. Me too. I also, I love anytime someone can take sort of a deep psychological idea that has mythological implications and they can sort of bury it into something that on the surface just seems like a pure piece of entertainment. Yep. Because it's, there's plenty of people I'm sure who went and saw Blind Spotting who said, oh, it's just a fun movie about two friends. There's a lot of great music in it. It's funny. Mm-hmm. And yet, and still, The film communicates on a subconscious level to people that whether or not you know all the messages that they're sending, you're receiving them whether or not you realize it. Yeah. Which I really admire that. People that are able to bury insights and messages deep within a narrative and have it be so effective. A hundred percent. To me, it is sun and moon. It is the light and the shadow, which is 
quintessentially what blind spotting is. Yeah. Is what you see first is that light. Yes. But then you have to see that shadow as well. Yes. And then you, once you recognize that you're seeing that shadow, you can never unsee it. Yes. And that's what the whole film is about. Well, and that's really the mythological idea we're dealing with mm-hmm. today is this mythological concept of sun and moon, which has been there since the beginning of mythological narratives. There's probably no two greater mythological symbols than the sun and the moon. We see these expressed in a million different ways throughout mythology. But I really like what you said is a way of unpacking the mythological idea. It's light and shadow. Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to maybe group things with the sun that are just bright and positive and things like that. And then we can say the moon only appears in the darkness. And that's that's been the way as well. Right, it has. And that's certainly one way of interpreting or unpacking the idea. But with light and shadow, what I like about that idea is that we're really talking about two sides of the same coin. Exactly. That you can't have shadow without light. And in many ways, the mythological idea that we're working with is this concept that light and shadow are two parts of us. Mm -hmm. We can't dismiss our shadow self and only embrace our light self. And in the same way, we can't romanticize our pain to a point where we just embrace our shadow self and feel like our light self is completely out of the picture. Mm -hmm. What for you is... When you think about those ideas, what's sort of the Tory philosophy about life, about how do you find balance? What is the yin-yang approach to life for you? I mean, that is what it is. It is a yin-yang. It is a balance of that. It's interesting. I've always been drawn to the moon. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I don't like being out in the sun. I don't like being hot. Maybe it's a (laughs) physiological thing. But I was always drawn to the moon. And the moon typically, in terms of myth and Association can be associated with intuition. Like we said, the shadow, the kind of more introverted interior thing. But I think it can be dangerous to, you can get kind of lost in the sauce, as the kids say, becoming too internal. But at the same time, you can get lost in the sauce of being the sun and being like, I'm fine. It's shining. (laughs) I'm great. You still have to examine that inner self. And so it is a, a form of integration, which... I think we as human beings go through. Like our lives are the integration of the light and the shadow. So our lives are the integration of the sun and the moon. Yes. And not vilifying or putting on a pedestal either one. Yeah. That's the key to me is we want to make these things binary and say one is good and one is bad. And we tend to, as people gravitate towards one or the other to say, oh, I'm a sun person. And so I reject all negativity in my life. Or we say, oh, I really connect with the moon and I don't like that fake cheesiness of the sun. And really, it's not about trying to only embody one or the other. It really is about the integration of sun and moon in our own lives. I have a number of friends that we could certainly have had on just to talk about the astrological significance (laughs) of these symbols and how they work out in our lives. But I also think that we see a number of gods in the mythological traditions that are strictly about embodying the sun. You know, Mm -hmm. Apollo is represented by the sun. The sun moving across the sky is, of course, Apollo riding his chariot. And we certainly have that embodied by certain mythological presences. But we never in mythology are able to only 
look at just one god. There's always the balance of the gods who are more lunar gods, or even gods from the underworld and who really embody the shadow. I wonder if this is something that our culture right now has really gotten away from. We want to make Mm. everything black and white. We want to make everything... We want to choose sides. We want to choose sides. Everything has become very tribal. And I wonder if messages of the integration of light and darkness and the embracing of the symbols of shadow and light, if they're just what we need as a culture right now. I wonder, like, what do you think would be the first step in getting us back to that? Yeah. I wonder if the first step in getting us back to that is actually tragedy. Mm. And I hate that. None of us like to go through tragedy. But I think we learn to embrace sadness and embrace grieving when we go through the dark places that only tragic circumstances seem to bring. And we realize that grieving sucks, but it brings about healing in our lives. The other thing I would say just to that idea, and I feel like maybe this is to me the key of looking at sun and moon as mythological symbols and ideas, is that the concept of being between the two mm. is I think where we find the most understanding and wisdom. And the space that exists between light and darkness, that space that's gray, yeah. that is a difficult place to be because we want answers. But I think most of us run towards the light all the time. And it's only when we get pulled back into the darkness through tragedy that we find ourselves in that gray space. So to me, understanding that in-between space and the importance of sort of living there is really the first step in getting to an integrated place of light and darkness. And I think even historically, when we talk about the gods of the sun, they were seen as the life givers. Like that's what the sun is. The sun gives light. And then the moon would be a more ominous figure. But in between the sun coming up and the moon coming up, you have life. You have even the boring parts of life, but the lives that you're living. And it's not happening on the sun and the moon. It's in between. Yes. That you're growing and you're learning and you're grieving. Yeah. And if we don't have, like you were saying, that grief, that tragedy, we won't have that light. We won't appreciate that light. Yeah. And I think even when you meet people, and we can even see this in blind spotting, who have gone through a trauma or with Colin going in into prison, he's still finding levity Yeah, because that's how the world works. That's, that's right. how we work. That's right. And we can still keep saying, oh, well, you got to choose a side yeah. or, hey, everybody try to be happy and right. <laughs> and that's not how life works. Yeah. We have to have that in between, that nuance. Yeah. It's uncomfortable because I think we want answers. Yes. yes. We want a definitive. This yeah. is what this is. And this is what that is. I know I do. Yeah. But that growth doesn't happen there. Yeah. It happens in that in between. It does. That The mythological idea of liminal space is so important to our development as human beings. And the ancient sages would say that liminal space is the most holy transcendent place to be because it's where we truly get a grander view of what's going on. Mm-hmm. We're not just seeing through one lens or another, but we're seeing the overlap of two lenses together. And so seeing that sort of clarity is what liminal space is all about. And I think the motifs that we see throughout blind spotting 
really are about sort of this idea of black and white being overlapped yep. to create this gray space that is a liminal space. Yeah. And it represents the truth, the reality of the non-binary world that we live in. For people who haven't seen Blind Spotting, because we're not going to assume everybody that's listening to this podcast. Although you should see it. Oh, you should see right it now. and go pause this podcast and go watch <laughs> yes. it right now. But for as someone who hasn't seen Blind Spotting, what's your sort of 30-second description of what is this movie about? What is Blind Spotting? Oh, gosh, that put me on the spot. <laughs> it's so layered. It's the story of two men, specifically focused on one, Colin and his best friend, Miles. And Colin has just gotten out of prison and is finishing up his last couple days of probation. And it is kind of the examining of these two men and their two worlds and their two points of view and how they are, each one has a blind spot and how them coming together and being best friends, they can reveal each other's shadow to each other. And the story is incredible. I'm not doing it justice, (laughs) honestly. There's so much going on and they're doing this within in a space of Oakland, which is their home and is so full of a very particular culture, but it's also changing with new people moving in. So you're having to deal with all of that while they are going through this very transformative time for both of them. Yeah. So yeah, if you haven't seen Blind Spotting, pause this right now. I give you permission (laughs) and go watch it. This is why I like to put you on the spot because you (laughs) always deliver so well in those moments. I mean, really, that's a wonderful description of the story. It really, in many ways, is the story of two friends working through the difficulties of long-term friendship as well. And from a story perspective, the story is only interesting if we have two really different characters that are trying to work this out which is where this sun-moon mythological idea comes from. Now, I would suggest, and I think we may have differing opinions on this, which I look forward to, (laughs) I would suggest that Colin is the sun Mm -hmm. and that he is the bright, positive force and presence that represents logic and represents trying to move towards the light And for me, Miles is the moon. He is the shadowy, problematic (laughs) character, which we love and which we are entertained by and find a great deal of insights through, but he gravitates towards darkness and towards shadow Mm -hmm. to me. And the film takes place, in my opinion, in the tension between Colin's sun Mm -hmm. and Miles' moon. Now... Are you with me on that? You know, it's interesting when I was watching it and we were looking at sun and moon, I immediately thought Colin was the moon. Mm. Only because for me, and I think this is a personal bias because I like the moon. Yeah, Not that I don't like the sun, (laughs) not that I don't like Miles, but to me, the moon is a more introspective. Yeah, I think Colin, for me, represented the moon because he sees the shadow around him. Mm. He sees that the moon itself reflects the sunlight. That's what the moon itself does not give off light. It reflects the sun. And so I think a lot of times, especially with the influence that Miles might have had throughout his past, he's reflecting Miles. He's reflecting Miles' personality sometimes. You could argue maybe some of his not so great qualities and great qualities. Miles is very charming. Yeah. So to me, that kind of more interior space 
And also that is the way the movie is done. The movie, we kind of get more into Colin's mental thoughts, yeah. more so than Miles. It's yeah. more focused on Colin. So he represented the moon to me. And then Miles to me, because he's so charming and so obviously more so the extrovert of the two of them. And when he walks into a room, you see him. Yes. And so to me, he was the sun. He yeah. was the Apollo. He was the gilded man. Yeah. Who, to me, because of the way it's focused, wasn't as interior. Mm. Because we mm. didn't get to see that. Yeah. In him. So it's interesting. But I totally yeah. see your point of view. Yeah. No, you make a strong argument, though. So I, I think I'm it's almost good persuaded. That we, <laughs> I, think it's almost, I think it's good we have both of those, those two different ones. Right. Right. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of the sort of things done in shadows, every episode we bring a skeleton out of our own closet and share that with the audience. So what have you brought for us today from your closet? All right, guys, I said I love the moon and I was not lying. So I was born under a full moon. So, hey, I have my reasons. But I actually, and this is going to sound very hippy-dippy, and I know that, and if you can give me all the comments you want, but I always meditate under a full moon. Like, I go outside, and I meditate under a full moon. I just feel, it just, I love a lunar energy. Wow. I really do. It's always reflective, and I always, out loud, will thank the moon. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a little hippy-dippy, but that would be mine. So, when we talked about this, I was like... I'm ready. <laughs> I love it. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> That's great. Well, I too have a skeleton to bring from the closet having to do with the moon. When I was about 10 years old, I got a telescope Ooh. for my birthday. And I used to love to take this thing outside. And it was about as powerful as holding a glass up to the moon. (laughs) That's about how powerful the telescope was. It it was not a powerful telescope, but I accidentally knocked the telescope over about a weekend and broke it. And I did not want to tell my parents that I'd broken the telescope. So I used to take the telescope out on cold East Texas nights and set it up in the yard and look through the telescope that had a broken lens. And just so my parents would think I was still, you know, <laughs> using the gift I got for that's precious. Yeah, for my birthday. So that's the skeleton. This is first time I'm revealing this dark secret. That's so. dedication. That's dedication, you right? Committed. Well, and to be honest with you, I did not see the moon any less than <laughs> I had when the telescope was working because the telescope was of such poor quality. So that's sometimes you just do the best you can with what you have. Yeah. You bloom where you're planted. You do. You bloom (laughs) where you're planted. I think before we get into our interview with Raphael, I think it might be important for us to talk just a little bit about the ideas of light and darkness that are in this film that Mm -hmm. are not just on the surface level. There's obviously Colin's character is black and Miles' character is white. Mm -hmm. And there certainly are some on the nose or on the surface ideas of black and white. But I also think one of the ideas that's explored in this story to me that feels very mythological is the idea that you had mentioned this is about the city of Oakland Mm -hmm. and that anything that we can find beauty in also has a dark and a shadow side. And anything that we find a shadow in also has a positive or a light side 
I know Blind Spotting is a film that impacted me greatly, mm-hmm. but it's probably not a film I would show to my mother. <laughs> I, Why not? Well, she gets a little sensitive to language and there, yes. um, certain thematic things. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that because, in some ways, blind spotting reminds me of a classic Greek myth, and that it's not always a pretty story. It's got rough edges, you 100%. know, around it. But in many ways, I, have, I feel like that's kind of part of what mythology does. Myths are often stories that not- deal with. The grittier side of life. Yeah, they're not easy. Sometimes not easy to digest. Yeah. And I don't think they're meant to be. No. I think there needs to be a level of, hey, this is real. Yeah. And confrontation. Yes. For you to wake up. Yes. And I think what this film does so well, especially in terms of, like we were talking about Oakland. Yeah. Is they present, like Oakland has a very long history. Yeah. One of culture, but also of the crack epidemic of being enforced there. and. Honoring that, but honoring the fact that, like, yes, these horrible things have happened, but they have made Oakland what it is. Yeah. They've made the Bay what it is. Yeah. So I think that's really important. But like you said, it is uncomfortable for some people to recognize that. Because I think a lot of times, too, especially in terms of examining the gentrification of a city. Right. You can see yourself on both sides of it. Right. My entire family is from Detroit. Right. My parents were raised there. So... I'm protective of that city, yeah. of people coming in there and yeah. taking it over. But then I understand that if I move into a neighborhood sometimes, I'm the gentrifier. Yeah. yeah. And so it makes the viewer examine themselves in a way that Colin and Miles have to. Right. They have to examine your space and your particular environment. Yeah. It's not easy to do. It's not. And that's where I think good myths need to be challenging. They need to have that rough edge in many ways because it sort of cuts the top layer of skin off. The protective piece that we all have, it sort of removes that and says, no, we've got to deal with the reality of this situation. For me, as a white person watching it, one of the most challenging moments in the film is there's a scene where Colin tries to get Miles to say the Mm N-word. And... It is such a powerful scene because we recognize as much as Miles is born and raised in this community and he's a part of this community, there's still a difference. Exactly. He understands that. He He refuses to say it. He does. Yeah. Yeah. And those are sort of the really rubber meets the road hard truths that a good myth unpacks Mm -hmm. and that it pulls apart and sort of forces us to take a look at. So many of my favorite myths are really stories about people who do horrible things and make terrible mistakes and who don't act in an ethical manner. And yet we want to walk away from stories like that with a really simple moral message. Like as I think especially as Americans, we like to walk away from these stories and from myths in general. It's one reason I think Americans have shied away from mythology, because we look for a very simple moral message that might be offered like in a parable or... You want a uh, soundbite. Yeah, soundbite. Yeah. And myths are just not that. They get under the surface and force us to confront these more... These problems that we can't assign simple language no. to. 
And that's why they've endured. That's why they endure. Yeah. They're not meant to be disposable and easy and they're not supposed to be popcorn. That's right. That's right. They're steak. They are. It's going to literally stick on your ribs. Yes. And that's why these stories have have lasted so long. And that's why we need these stories. Yeah. That's why we need myth more than ever. Yeah. Because if we're not, everything has become so like transient. Everything is so fast. If we're not examining these stories and examining this shadow. Yeah. What are we even doing? I couldn't agree more. In a culture that all we want is ice cream, some stories and myths give us our vegetables. Mm -hmm. And wow, do we need that more than ever. Well, before we get to our interview with Raphael, the other thing that we always offer everyone in these episodes is some sort of key that's been helpful to us lately. So a skeleton key to unlock something that has been important for you in the last couple of weeks. So Tori, what have you been thinking about? Um, So in terms of the skeleton key that for me unlocked the sun and the moon, Mm. it's actually the tarot. Mm. So the tarot just deals with archetypes. Yeah. That is especially the major arcana. Yeah. And I've never really been a tarot person, Mm -hmm. but I like archetypes. I wouldn't be on this podcast if I didn't. (laughs) And so it was kind of exploring through that and exploring what the sun meant in the tarot yeah. and what the moon meant in the tarot that I was able to kind of gain even more insight yeah. of to what these mean throughout time and what these will continue to mean. Yeah. So shout yeah. out to the tarot for Oof. helping me through. <laughs> Love it. Love it. What about you? Yeah. For me, since we've been working on this episode, I've been thinking a lot about the way that race has played out at different points in history. And certainly mm. this is a story that deals a lot with race. And it inspired me to go back and read the book, The Invisible Man. Uh, and I just feel like everyone listening <laughs> owes it to themselves at yeah. least once every two to three years to go back and read that book because it's just such a rich exploration of race. Mm-hmm. It's a rich exploration of metaphor, and it's a rich exploration of how there are stories just below the surface in society that we don't necessarily have to deal with explicitly in order to make a much grander point. I've always loved the saying that myths are more than true. And in so many ways, The Invisible Man is a book that is more than true. So yeah, shout out to Ralph Ellison and the book, The Invisible Man. But that has been a key for me lately, just in thinking about race in our culture. That's incredible. We've, got, we've given you guys homework. Yes. So yes. blind spotting and Invisible Man. <laughs> That's right. Report That's, back. Report back. <laughs> Send us your book report. I need a book report. (laughs) Well, let's get right to our interview with Raphael. I really think you're in for a treat. If you're unfamiliar with him and his work, you, I hope, will become as big of fans as we are of him. An incredible artist, but also, I think, one of the most intelligent creators out there today. So let's get to it. Well... Almost every major mythological tradition has this idea of the sun and the moon, which are seen as like two sides of the same coin. And where we really saw a lot of mythological connection to blind spotting is in the characters of Miles and Colin. And maybe a good place to start is just to talk a little bit about where the idea of blind spotting came from. Now, not so much the the idea. I know the two of you grew up together and there's a lot of biographical things going on, but 
the idea of blind spotting as a psychological idea is, is actually a really mythological idea as well. And so maybe a good place just to kind of open things up is to talk a little bit about where blind spotting came into the conversation between the two of you. Yeah. In terms of like, how did that convention come about? Yeah. I think I first heard about this sort of, this dual image, this face and vase thing, probably in some like collective behavior course at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I ended up majoring in sociology after taking a ton of psych classes after dropping out of the English department because all they wanted me to read was 17th century lit. (laughs) And I didn't want to do that. And so this concept was presented to me and it always sort of stuck out. I love the idea that two people could perceive one thing fundamentally differently. And then it would keep coming up. There'd be, there was this like thing happening on social media every six months or every year. It'd be like, is the dress (laughs) blue and green or is it whatever? And people would argue about it and be like, is the person on the swing swinging towards us or away from us? (laughs) And everyone would debate it. And I thought it was so fascinating that people were, nobody was ever fascinated with what was happening, but more so people were like viciously arguing their side. It was this great trap for people to sort of show their biases, even in those forms, sort of really insignificant ways, but how things like that with bigger consequences could be really sort of problematic. And that's sort of that paired with this love that the Bay Area has for giving memorable names to put things in sort of popular vernacular so that we can name a thing really easily and it can be sort of thrown around in casual conversation and people can understand a much more elaborate concept in just a word. So we're like, well, I wonder if we could rename something complicated in a way that it can get just sort of dropped in a conversation. And so we wanted to insert that into the movie that everything would sort of lead up to that point where we would watch it get presented and then watch it get sort of turned into a term and then watch the term get applied in a situation where it functioned and watch that all happen in 90 minutes and then see if it would ever transfer out into the real world. And it kind of (laughs) did like not in some massive way, but we've heard it on a, like a jeopardy like game show once I heard it. I've heard it on the radio a bunch. I've heard it in sports a bunch, not just necessarily like talking about blind spots, but talking about blind spotting as an action. Which I thought was just really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it popped up. It's great. So Nietzsche had this mythological idea that there was the Apollonian and the Dionysian. And basically, the Apollonian is represented by the sun, and it is sort of the logic. It's the thinking part of us that is all about two plus two equals four and approaching life from this logical place. And then the Dionysian is like the god of wine, it's creativity, it's the moon, it's dance, it's art. And the idea of having two characters in a story that sort of represent those two polar places is as old as time. And sometimes we refer to it as the straight man and the funny man, or we refer to it in a million different ways. But the way that blind spotting sort of unpacks this with the character of Colin being sort of the Apollonian sun and Miles being the Dionysian moon, is that something that just came out of the relationship between the two of you? Or was that something that the two of you saw from a storytelling perspective could really create that tension in a story? Well, you're right that it's it's sort of omnipresent in storytelling. And so I think our 
Anytime we're coming up with pairings of people, our impulse is always to do pairings like that because that's all we've ever seen and what we've been introduced to, right? And that those patterns of those stories get repeated over and over again. So I think before I could probably ever name conventions like that, it was already there. I think then you start, I'm thinking of things like the allegory of the chariot, or at least you have it ego and superego, or you have sort of the wild, rambunctious, impulsive part of the mind and they sort of emotive the, the heart and then the sort of cognitive logical function of the mind. And, and anytime you have two characters like that, right, the allegory of the chariot, I think, is those two up front and sort of the cognitive mind trying to keep them from veering or, from, or, or to keep them going in the same direction. And I think to a certain degree, there's this, if I was to run them through that allegory, it's Miles and Colin are the two horses and the movie is kind of trying to steer them. <laughs> We're trying to have the goodwill of logic sort of steer them in the right direction. I think they're both sort of battling against their, their smarter selves a little bit and their impulses at the same time. So, But yeah, I mean, we love that, right? Like, I think Colin is definitely the more cerebral character. Also, just in a film, you don't want to watch necessarily two cerebral characters. You want to watch somebody sort of colliding with someone who's an introvert. And so, yeah, then the introvert and the extrovert sort of trying to navigate language when one has too many words and the other one doesn't have enough. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that you were talking about the Apollonian and the Dionysian, because a lot of times, especially in examining the twins with the moon being the more of the intuitive of the shadow, and then the sun being the great beam. And so at times I can see them kind of switch. So Miles would be the sun, and then Colin would be the moon that reflects his surroundings. But I think what's really interesting about blind spotting is that you're doing the two characters, but it's also a tale of two cities. So it's the new Oakland and the Oakland that was. And can you kind of tell us about balancing that and examining the differences? Yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing with a film that is trying to say something about a a city that for some people feels like is dying and other people feel like is being born. We're of the old, so we have first like a loyalty to preserve. That's also the city or the narrative that is being sort of pushed out. And so I think for us, there was a massive expectation that we would time capsule a, a moment with the film, which meant there, I think there was a lot more obligation to represent it accurately. I think the, the quote unquote new narrative of Oakland that was coming in needed less help being captured needed more, I think, not to be presented in a two-dimensional way as much as possible. And so while the idea of a town being being taken over is sort of the villain, we never really see anyone particularly villainous that's new. We just sort of make a, we take, there's a few jokes at their expense, but even those are pretty like fleeting and they don't have anything to do with the plot other than to help you like quickly learn who a person is by a trope. The villains really are sort of each of the principal characters' shortcomings and then a, and even a police officer who we never really get to understand his story at all. We just see that he's clearly going through a lot more than I think we ever get presented. And we just hint that there's always kind of a lot more to it than you get to see. And so then the two sides of the city just get presented enough to know, here's the one that we love and that we know and that we can write into. And here's the other one that's coming in that we know is more complicated than we can understand. But because we're not of that, we can't fully capture that experience. We can just show it in all of its complexity. And our only real window into it is the reality that me and David have been gentrifiers everywhere we've lived since then. And the complexity of that identity that I can move to another hood and I can be from, I can have just moved from West Oakland 
and be of that economic circumstance. But if I move to Washington Heights in New York, like I don't know those black and brown and white people. Like I don't know those people. And so I'm their problematic person, even though I've never perceived myself as that. And I'm fundamentally different than somebody of a different economic or higher economic class coming in and sort of uprooting entire buildings, but not fundamentally separate from like the problem as a whole. I think we're trying to present it less with this sort of divided line down the middle and more this like this gradient of a circumstance that just everyone affected by it is thrown into. That was very good. It was really good. It seems like one of the sort of underlying motifs, the whole story is the idea of the binary in general of as much as we want to make everything black and white, because that's what our brains want to do. There's so very little in life that actually is clearly black and white. And it just seems like at every turn in the story, you guys are deconstructing the idea of black and white, which is, again, one of the oldest mythological ideas. Again, I think with creators, a lot of people want to know what was conscious and what was unconscious. What just sort of happens as you're trying to tell this story and what thematically or from a motif perspective Are you like, no, we really want to do it this way with this scene in order to get that across? Yeah, I think there's a few sort of bigger powers in play when you're making a film because audiences are accustomed to perceive people a certain way. So you can subvert it as much as you want, but people sort of start to pick sides after a while because we are sort of addicted to sort of good and evil and light and dark. And I think we're a little bit more forgiving about that when things are closer proximity to our lives, especially with ourselves. I think like when we think of ourselves, those extremes, which sometimes are what deities or just like philosophies of schools of thought, we can perceive as all of them actively in play in ourselves. But other people, we sort of like to paint with a single brush because it's easier. It's easier to sort of like categorize people. And so I think while we did our best to make sure that everybody was particularly complicated, Just the narrative structure of a film dictates who people start to think are the heroes and the villains. And also the other thing that comes into play is where people come from in life really determines whether or not they like certain characters or not. And I think it was really interesting about Colin and Miles specifically, before we can get to the women who I think also were sort of thrown into a bunch of different perception discrepancies, depending on who was watching. I think if you don't know a Miles, he's very easy to cast as the villain. If you don't know a Val, she's very easy to dislike. If you don't know the politics of hair in certain communities, you don't know that Val is kind of an asshole and that she says some things that are like not great about how Colin should conform to preserve himself. If you don't come from communities where police violence is in abundance, you don't know how complicated it is that she made that suggestion that he should cut his hair because the threat of danger may not be as real for you as as it is for him. And that's where everybody's trying to act in love. Val is trying to preserve Colin's life. Miles is trying to preserve Colin's life. They Val sees Miles as against that idea. And so he's fundamentally bad to her. And Miles sees Val as fundamentally bad because she's trying to change him and Miles thinks the best Colin is the one that he knows, you know, and that loyalty and things like that are how you survive. So I think that jumps around a lot. I think it's fascinating that we did so many screenings of the movie and the thing that came up the most, which I would challenge, especially when we got to the later screenings, 
There's a scene in the middle of the movie where we see what happened to Colin when he got sent to prison. And uh, there was a few moments, especially when I did a few screenings, where I was kind of the only person there talking to the audience. And so I get the most questions about Miles at those screenings. And there's definitely like a divide in the audience. Some people are like, oh, I got that friend. I love that friend, but he's a fucking idiot. And then there are people like, who would honestly ask the question, why wouldn't you just stop being friends with that person? I kind of think to myself, oh, it's so interesting. You don't have lifelong friends. You don't know that that's not an option. But more so that scene in the middle, they would, people would go, well, Miles is the reason Colin got sent to prison. And then I would play this scene back and I'd be like, let's watch that again. <laughs> let's play this scene again. A man assaults Colin physically. First law broken at his job. Colin then assaults that man. And then Miles jumps in when they're both on fire. <laughs> yeah. But the movie is telling you that Miles is troublesome. And so the minute you see him do something that in the cinematic universe feels like the mm-hmm. catalyst moment, and then Val, who's sort of also appearing at, as a moral compass at that point in the thing, says, Miles did the thing. Our gut, the way that we are taught to understand story, tells us to trust Val, moral compass, and condemn Miles. And while Miles is guilty of other things, he's not guilty of that. And to Val's credit too, like Miles condemns her for things that are not the reasons that you might think Colin shouldn't be with her. And I think we were trying to do that over and over again and just kind of go, well, what does it mean when we paint somebody a certain way? Like the cop is in his night is in Colin's nightmares over and over again as this violent, vicious person. But we never find out why that guy was running from him. We don't know what happened. We don't hear anything about the story. And when we find him, actually, there's a lot of stuff that we left out of the film of what they discover in the house before he finds him in the garage. There was all this other stuff where they found an engagement ring on the table, which clearly that woman had then just left and was leaving and packing up all of her stuff. And his life has completely fallen apart. And Ethan Embry, the guy who plays the police officer so brilliantly, came up with this whole backstory that sort of we know that we don't think we need to share with people, but it further complicates it. But when you find him there, he's crying and broken, and there's a man in his house and he, I think, has every right in the world to go for that gun. And Colin has every right in the world to pull his. And that's why it's so complicated. There's a man in your house, <laughs> not in yeah. uniform, yeah. in a tank You understand top, it. Who you saw earlier. His fear is justified. Colin's fear is justified. That's where life gets really, really messy, is that people's suns and moons are toggling in real time all the time. And I think we like to think of like a person as a constant impulsive person or a constant cerebral person. And it's when you start to see people more as a, you don't know the speed in which they are rotating (laughs) and whether or not there's any pattern to it whatsoever. I think we just try to paint characters that were unpredictable like people are. That's what I think makes those characters so compelling is they're also constantly rotating. So we see miles at his worst but we also see when his son gives him a gift with that t-shirt the light it, yeah, yeah it is like the most beautiful tender innocent moment that you cannot no matter what you think of miles you love him in that moment in, in the same thing with colin's character there's moments that he rotates and it's like well that's maybe not the best <laughs> idea this, yeah, yeah. decision Which, again, I think is why, Tori, you and I, when we started talking about this being a mythological Mm -hmm. film, 
we just we saw so much sun and moon happening. Yes, because I think it's just cyclical. I think everyone goes through phases where you're the sun. You're just like every, and then I would say I'm coming out of a moon phase where I've been more internal and and thinking about what's going on. But it's constantly shifting, and that's how people are. And you were saying with your screenings that people were still coming out like, oh no, Miles was bad. I think it's interesting that they that they were taking that away or making these very concrete judgments when I think the film is built around demolishing that and re-examining who we are and even thinking about the Sun and Moon twins, they are creator myths from way back when. And so Miles and Colin are the creator of this kind of examining of those two. I love that. I do too. And the other place that like in mythology, you see Sun and Moon so much is in alchemy. So you have tons of different alchemical images that have the sun and the moon in the same image. And the idea, you know, of alchemy was that you would combine two forces in order to create something completely new. So you'd combine lead and straw in order to make gold. And maybe you could talk just a little bit about, we almost always see these two characters in each other's presence. There's just a couple of moments in the film that we see them separated. We see Colin when he's out on his run and he, he's seeing himself before the jury. And we see Miles, actually, when he comes home that night after getting his ass kicked in that moment with his partner that is this beautiful, tender moment between the two of them. But something happens when those two forces are put together. They're clearly two different people, but when they come together, there's something new that's created. What is that new thing? I have this with David for sure outside of the film and a few writer friends as well. I think there's this massive force that happens when you get around someone who gives you permission to be yourself. You sort of become a fully realized version and it fuels the other person to do the same. It's sort of this unique version of yourself when you're around another person that doesn't exist elsewhere. And I think Colin and Miles validate each other's complexity and also provide each other a degree of safety, both like emotional safety and physical safety, which I think essentially what we always kind of said the film was about is trying to watch two men trapped in sort of the, the constraints of their masculinity, having to say something to each other that's really hard. Miles, that he's like losing his identity and it hurts. And Colin, that he's scared. He's so scared. He gets asked three times in the movie if he's good, right? And he only admits it to Miles in the end that he's not. And that's when we kind of realized the movie was over. Well, he, Miles said he's losing himself. And Colin came back, which to me is, I hear you. And I'm going to deal with you. And I'm pissed at you. And, and then Miles still asks him that, that question. Yeah. And we've talked about the whole premise of blind spotting. Do you think there's one way to do that, to see your blind spot? Or do you think you'll ever be able to see all of it, the whole picture? I don't know if that's the goal, right? Like that sometimes feels like the wrong question of like, oh, how do I, how do I become fully woke? (laughs) (laughs) Impossible. Like fuck off, right? (laughs) I always try to pinpoint like why that word bothers me so much. (laughs) And like, it feels performative. It feels performative. I mean, like, honestly, we can do this for months. <laughs> Why that word is disgusting. But I think most of the thing that I hate about it is that it's a word that exists in the past tense. As if, like, mm. you're done. Like, you finished. You, thought, you, like, you reached you, the finish you line. Did <laughs> you did you're it. You did it. You were blind. You can see now. You're all done. And I, 
Yeah, it's one that it's constantly referred to in the past tense, which I think drives me crazy. But it's also, I think, like, this came up a lot in our writing process, too. People would, <laughs> people would ask, they would talk to us as if, like, I wrote Miles' parts and Diggs wrote Colin's parts, because that's how writing works. <laughs> it doesn't have it the character. Ridiculous. ridiculous. <laughs> right. It's like, well, you, so, David, you spoke for all of blackness. <laughs> and Run Robin, you, <laughs> you spoke for this white voice. <laughs> so it works. And I think... We talk about only because I think it demonstrates the exercise that people think that final rap that Colin says to the officer is something that Diggs wrote. And it's not that he couldn't have written it, but he didn't. And the only reason I think that, or he wrote, I think it's 36 bars and he wrote, he added four. At the last one, he was like, I need to add a little bit of my Diggs man to it, which he did. But I, I'll bet you people couldn't guess which part it was. Yeah. And I bet they'd be wrong. And I think why that's important to name is that the piece is just talking to that officer about what happened and what they can't fundamentally understand. And I think in writing it, it was that everyone absolutely has the capacity to understand what is happening in this country and to be able to name it and to be like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. I can't talk about it. I I could never Mm -hmm. understand. Now, you can't feel it, but you can understand it. (laughs) You can understand it intimately. Proximity will help you do that. If you grow up in communities that have been deeply affected by that, whether or not it directly affects you, if you are around it, it can be done. And I think that's why that scene works, is that Diggs showed us how it felt in his performance, and the words gave it the language in order to do that. One of the things that I think is interesting, especially as we hold like this sun-moon idea up to blind spotting, is the music is almost like a character in this story. And I know that music has obviously been a big part of both of your lives. And that is uh, mixes in with the idea of Oakland and the, the music that comes out of Oakland and has come out of Oakland. How do you see, I'm just going to put this idea out there and maybe you can just riff on it or talk about it. Music in some ways is very much like a sun moon motif in that it can express the best of us and the worst of us, our brightest days, our darkest days, our reflections, And it seems to me that maybe even the music of Oakland specifically, and not not just hip-hop, but, uh, you know, the music that came out of Oakland before hip-hop was even an art form, it seems to me that Oakland is sort of about these extremes musically, of really bright, of, it's the city that brought us Too Short and MC Hammer. Yeah. (laughs) That's the sun and the moon. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that? I think the Bay Area is a very, and I've talked about this a lot, so forgive me if this is all on some other podcast somewhere, (laughs) but I always described the Bay Area as Whoville, as this little speck that is shouting, we're here. And I think regardless of whether or not anyone outside of it feels as though we're, we're sort of unheard or underrepresented, I think everyone there feels like we'll have a music movement and then in the 90s and early 2000s, it would be on MTV and we'd hear the sound of it, but none of the artists, all of our artists are still local, but the sound has gone national, international. And the same thing felt like it would happen with movies. People want to shoot movies there, but they don't want to tell stories about the place. So San Francisco is a backdrop. I remember there was like a Jet Li movie 
that took place in Oakland, and we were like, yeah, it's Chet Lee, and it's in <laughs> Oakland, and it would like say that it was in Oakland, and then we were watching it going like, where the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> it looks nothing like it. I remember the show years ago, you know, the show Parenthood came on the air, and they were like, the show's going to take place in Berkeley, California, and I was like, can't wait. Berkeley's <laughs> the weirdest fucking place. This is going to be amazing. And I turned on the show, and I was like, this is... Seattle. <laughs> this is where is this? And the dad on the show was like, "Yeah, I'm on San Pablo at a bar." I was like, hmm. "What bar? <laughs> the Albatross, the Irish pub where someone's gonna like they play board games? Like, there's no way. That's no way you're there. <laughs> and you're not there. Not in that suit with that haircut. <laughs> not a fucking chance. So I think there's been a lot of mining of the place. Mm-hmm. And so I think. Because of that, there's so there's a swelling of pride. It's in the way that we talk. You know, if there was three Bay Area people here, my speech pattern would just start changing drastically. And it's in the way you walk, and it's in the way you laugh. And someone pointed out, like, there's all these accounts that are like Bay Area memes that like only we would get. But it's the funniest shit in the world to me because it's all true. <laughs> and one that came up yesterday was Bay Area people when around each other won't laugh at a joke we go that's funny <laughs> we don't laugh we like have to name it like that's what that is because we both think something is funny but also want to point out that it was really smart <laughs> and there's all these little sort of things that come up and we realize that a lot of it is triggered by music that like music reminds us of place and specificity and so i think we were conceiving of the movie we we're like well if the whole sound bed is the bay with rare exception then everyone from there won't be able to leave there when they're watching it and it'll keep people in the movie. I don't think we've ever seen that before, really. I think Fruitvale did a good job of it. I think that was one of the few other times. I think there were moments in Sorry to Bother You that brought it home in that way. And there was there's some small indie films like uh, Licks did that really, really well. La Mission did it really well for the city. But most people don't know those movies. Licks was like a sort of a hood classic back home and I'm not from the city, so I don't know how well La Mission kind of like permeated the culture. But that site specificity is so important to us because it, I think, subconsciously gives you all of the indications of place and of of a world that can hold Hammer and Too Short simultaneously. So you have since that we opened the movie with this Mac Dre song is the first like really local song that we have. And the song is like bright and happy, but it's like a super hood, like dark, grimy song. But the chords are all these motifs, you know, there's all these like really that duality. I think we love, I think we love the movement that Mac Dre started in the Bay was about sort of having a drug induced happy party to counter how violent and hard life had gotten. That's why MDMA got popular in the Bay long before I remember anyone even calling it MDMA. It was just Molly back home and I felt like we were the only place that were really doing Molly recreationally. (laughs) Then it was everywhere all of a sudden. But a happy drug is the thing that becomes popular to like hood kids because it's getting really hard. And I think that's the medicine. That's the psychedelic medicine that everybody was on. And since the movie sort of came in a post era of that in its height, I think it felt important to show people trying to preserve joy when it's not a particularly joyful moment. Yeah. Wow. Sounds great. The last thing that I wanted to ask about is you talked about some of the other characters in the story. So Val to me is a really Mm -hmm. significant character that is sort of the bridge between the sun and the moon in many ways. Mm -hmm. 
But then even some of the more minor characters, and I can't remember the character's name, but when they're moving the stuff from the art gallery, the art gallery owner yeah, yeah. that gets them to do the little exercise yeah, with each other. Wayne Knight played um, yeah. Patrick. Yeah. It just seems like you've got a couple of characters like that mm-hmm. that sort of act as, hey, let me see about bridging the sun the and the conduit. moon. conduit, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the right word. Yeah. yeah. That are conduits. And I wonder if you can talk about those characters just as you're creating those characters that are going to be the characters that sort of link the sun and the moon What's sort of going through your creative process? There's a few, right? And I think those are probably our most like chariot moments, right? Yeah. Where like Patrick is like, let's get aligned for a second and see if we can see each other. And like, I think Patrick is sensing the beginnings of a weird disconnect. And it is a little bit of a metaphor for the town. It's like, we kind of need to look each other in the eye and be honest. Which I think at the time that we were writing that scene, there were so many things that felt like both between them is sort of a language barrier, which is ironic because they... It's not that they're not speaking the same language, but that they're sort of afraid to use that language with each other. And there's a few really funny jokes in that scene that I love, like the pictures that Santiago and Dantas that they're holding that he says, don't get along. Those are digs of my dad's. <laughs> um, and I think all the, like three of the women on the wall are all my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> so it's like, because we call them favors. <laughs> so I think it's funny. I watch the scene and I go, oh, that's, uh, that's 20 to 21. That's hey. 22 to 23. That's... These are my year-long relationships in the um, All on a wall. It's a museum of my favorite. Of your past. <laughs> no, but I think that, I think Colin's mom, played by Margot Hall, is that in that moment we see that that's how we know that they've been raised together and that she sees Miles as a son. However, sort of foolish and silly he is, she entertains him because she knows he's a good person. And we see that, like, what's interesting about that is that in that scene, Colin is the fuck up to her. Yeah. <laughs> and Miles is just kind of like the silly one. Yeah. But Colin is the, what are you doing? You messed it up with the girl. Mm-hmm. You don't have anywhere to live. And you're trying to move in with me. Yeah. Go live with Miles or something. <laughs> he has a kid and a girl and a house. Like, she knows there's an like implication there that like Miles is the one who has it together, which <laughs> I guess in some, <laughs> some ways he does. Yes. You know? <laughs> and I think then you have your scenes with Ashley, who is sort of, Seems like the stability amidst their generation. She's the one sort of, I think if the two of them were roommates, that place would be a disaster. I think she's like, I am a mom. I clearly have a life of my own. I am gathering us all around food, Mm -hmm. which is a very communal thing to do. It's also the moments where we see Miles and Colin at the most sort of subdued. Like they're very domestic in those moments. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very wholesome moment in the movie. And I think also we wanted to like demonstrate wholesomeness in a way that I understand it, which is like, people were like, oh, but Miles is like rolling weed at the table. I was like, and what's your problem with that? Like, <laughs> That's real. It's illegal. Like, <laughs> do what he wants. <laughs> you know, a lot of my family did that growing up. It was never demonized. It was like, people smoke weed. What, yeah. Who do you yeah. care? Yeah. But again, it was like a trigger. It's a way for people to like, oh, there, he's doing that. That's bad. But I think there's all these people that allow them to sort of orbit around them for a moment. And we see how they sort of change and adjust. That's why I love to like see. I was like all my boys that I grew up with who are all like grown men now and a lot of them have kids and we're in our 30s and shit. Like the hood is there, but it's not this aggressive early <laughs> 20s thing that's on us all the time. And some of us have let go of it more than others in terms of like the posturing of it all. But I can't help but see them all as little boys still. And you see them around their moms and around the women they love and their kids and stuff. And you're like, oh God, we just totally adapt to the energy that we're around. And it's so interesting to me, like what energy we like can discard like that and what energy we really like 
cling to or fall back into in those moments. And so what's interesting about Ashley, Ashley and Val, who I think like, there's a lot of things that didn't make it into the movie that originally are there. We had scenes where they met and there was, we had an understanding of like them being friends for a while. They were both in the bar when the thing happened with Colin. And, and so we saw that they were all a group of friends at one point, And this was the destruction of that. And we sort of get a sense that they still follow each other on social media. So we imply that like they have some relationship. Stop following her on the media. Yeah, stop following her on the medias. <laughs> God, I love that line. <laughs> Got so many good laughs out of that. So we on the, there was another thing that we cut out of. Oh, and the other thing that used to be is it used to be, I think you mentioned that like we have very few moments where they're apart. It was really this last draft that made the film more about Colin than about the two of them. Mm. We took out a lot of scenes. Originally, there's a the scene with where we go to Colin's house and he gets kicked and he's getting kicked out. There's originally Miles' house. And we'd go there and we're getting a window into Miles' life. So we were going to sort of see a little bit more sympathy of his home life. But we just realized that we didn't sort of need it for the simplified version of the story. And again, that's how we like sort of steer back into convention and try to ride the wave of people's expectations. I think that's why we're so much more sympathetic to everybody because we know scenes that no one else knows and things that we decided about them that were really useful. But yeah, every person, we wanted them to meet a bunch of different people around the town so we could see how they reacted to those people and how those people reacted to the town and the changes that it's going through and how then those people, because of the way they saw the town, reacted to the two of them and how they felt about their friendship if they immediately accepted it or if they thought it was off or if they like tried to talk to one person more than the other person and why. We had this crazy scene that was in the movie for a while that was going to this rich white girl's house in the hills and her dad was going to be like an art dealer and there was this like, 12 foot by 12 foot like Aztec calendar on her wall <laughs> and they were tasked with getting it down. <laughs> it was just all this conversation about how like fucked up it was, this was in this house and they were going to have to go to Home Depot and hire Mexicans to move an Aztec calendar take this down out of this white woman's house and we were like, oh, this is great. <laughs> it was so much fun to do that scene. We just like couldn't do it. But it was going to be this whole like music montage of <laughs> them like getting it out. <laughs> you know, we were really excited about that. We just couldn't afford it. <laughs> and there was another move in the movie that we actually shot this one where they, it's the only scene that just didn't work, but there's a scene in it right now where Sarah Kay plays a real estate agent and they're gutting a, an empty house. And now it's just a scene where there's this verse thing that Colin does through over some like really ambient jazz and they're just clearing out the house and then we added in this moment where they go out to the truck and he turns and he goes, and I see something about a boat. And the jump to the boat thing we had to fake. If you ever watch that scene where he's dropping it down, in no way does David say, is there something about a boat? Just watch his mouth. <laughs> the ADR is I'm gonna go back and do so that. bad. <laughs> he's saying something completely different. <laughs> what actually happened in the script is they go upstairs and the house is filled with junkies. I mean, we shot this. There's all these people strung out on drugs there that have been sleeping there. And they realized that it's their task to like get them to leave and how hard that was. And earlier in the script, there was a version where it cuts from finding them all. No, I think what they do is, and we shot this part, they have to tiptoe over everyone, get a couch. And originally what he mouse is, weren't we supposed to get a couch out of the upstairs? And they go and they get the couch. First, there's a guy on the couch asleep and they have to move him. Mm. And they're having a debate whispering how fucked up this is that they have to do this. They move a guy off the couch, they lift the couch up, and then while they're holding it, he starts talking about how he has an instrument in the couch, and he jumps on the couch and pulls the saxophone out. And we had this whole scene where he starts talking about how he used to play for Sly and the Family Stone. And it sort of was to give a little bit of window into like who becomes 
Mm-hmm. Because we had this, tr- the crack and heroin epidemic in Oakland is very well documented. It's pretty well documented that it was the CIA and the FBI too that like sort of did that and introduced it into the community to sort of disrupt the Black Panther and the Black Power movement in, in the Bay Area. And so we wanted to sort of have a little bit of that narrative. And that's why it was a trumpet. And that's why if you look in Colin's room at the end of the movie, there's a trumpet still in the room because we shot all that. And he eventually takes the trumpet. And I think during the sailboat scene, we've sort of scoped it out. But you see Colin, when he walks out of that scene, he looks at the trumpet in his hand that's out of frame. I think the little corner of it is is in there just as an Easter egg, which that's definitely not on another podcast. (laughs) Um, You heard it here first. You heard it here first. But I think as much as we managed to get into the movie, that convention was huge of really surrounding them with all these other people that would fundamentally change the way in which they responded to each other and responded to the person. In that scene, Miles is so mean to this homeless drug addict. He's so mean. And he's not mean because he doesn't get it. He's mean because he totally gets it. And he's tired. He's just annoyed. And it's sort of two sides of the same coin. Like, I think the easy solution, the, the easy response would be like, well, Miles doesn't get it because he's white. He doesn't understand the plight of black people addicted to drugs. And it's like, why would he not? He stepped over probably the same amount that Colin has now true Colin's proximity to like seeing himself and someone of the same complexion as him in that circumstance is inarguably a deeper cut. But I'm pretty sure Miles also has a complicated relationship with people in his community living on the street, right? But I think the response is, I've heard, I've seen that response from people from all different backgrounds of just like the moments that you are frustrated with. I remember like going on my porch in, in West Oakland when, when I was like 21, 22 and I had this spot on MLK and Telegraph. And there's a dude I saw all the fucking time and we were friends. He was a homeless dude who was definitely strung out or on his way off, but still deeply affected by the drugs that he was doing or had done. And we had to have it out all the time because he'd be on my porch, you know, sleeping. And he'd be like, dude, like, we're cool, but there's a line, you know? And sometimes that temper was cool and sometimes it wasn't. Eventually, he, he and another guy robbed the upstairs neighbors who were hipsters at gunpoint, which is the hipsters that we based our hipsters off of. <laughs> and we thought it was so funny until he on his way running away from that, broke into my car (laughs) and stole a bunch of stuff like within 10 minutes of it. And the police showed up to find the person who had stuck up our neighbors. And we were in this weird moment of, and he was hiding under my car. We found him hiding under my car. And I was like, I'm not going to turn you into the police because I got love for you, but you can cause me so, like that was like $800 and shit, you know? And I think because of growing up in that place and moments like that, me and David are just like in love with the complexity of mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And like, oh man, I'm hell of sun and moon about this dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. I deeply, deeply sympathize with where you're at more so than the dudes upstairs who will happily Turn you put in. you in the back of this car because yeah. they have no proximity to you, right? None at all. And mine is significantly closer than that. But I would argue that Diggs is probably more so. And I think Diggs was there that day and was like, mm. we can't. Mm. Yeah. We cannot put a homeless middle-aged black man in the back. We cannot help them turn this yeah. person in. Yeah. This criminal justice system is not, bi- and we know that already. That. It's not built for that. Yeah. It's not a, it's because it's not about justice and it's yeah. not about rehabilitation. Yeah. You know, it's not a correctional place. <laughs> and our proximity to that or the middle space we knew allows us to see that window in. It is that duality. It's like, yeah, you're also an asshole for breaking into a car. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everybody in the movie is a person like that. Somebody that sort of both like unites and polarizes our 
our protagonist. And that's why we're doing the blind spotting show now. It's yeah. like, we felt like Ashley, the character that Jasmine played was like the next person we wanted to like see get pulled in a bunch of different directions mm-hmm. and like, all right. Yeah. What is that like as a black woman with a nine-year-old yeah. in Oakland, like two years later when it's, when the city's in a completely different place and, yeah. and you're with Miles. who <laughs> <laughs> comes with his own bag of shit. And also we try to put little hints of it in there with Ashley that like right. she's, Drinking whiskey at dinner and like she's turning up while she's cooking. Like Ashley's not some like Like, don't sleep. Don't sleep. (laughs) She's with Miles. (laughs) Okay. You know what I mean? Like she looked at everyone she could be with and she was like like, that guy. I like this dude. (laughs) (laughs) Stuck it out. They still live together. They have a six-year-old. Like she could have been left. (laughs) She was like, no, no, no. This is mostly fine. (laughs) 80-20. It's 80-20, which like if you've ever been in a relationship, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I like those odds. I like those odds. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, so good. Thank you. Thank you. For doing this. Yeah. Sure, this is awesome. Thank you so now much. I'm going to learn more about mythology. <laughs> I'm like, I'll just stick to my movie. I know more about that. <laughs> I told you. I was like, you don't have to know the myth. That's right. Oh. That's right. No, we really appreciate it. Thanks so awesome. much. Yeah. Thank you so much to Rafael Casal for that. I mean, he's one of the most talented human beings. I mean, <sighs> writer, actor, director, singer, so rapper, poet. What does he not do? I mean, I trust him to fly a plane, <laughs> honestly. He probably can do that. He's like, yeah, I have that skill. He's the definition of a Renaissance man. He really is. He really is. He is like a modern day Da Vinci. He 100%. really is. See? Ugh, such, such a fan of that man and his work. So honored he came on the show. Well, I feel like we could probably talk about sun and moon forever. They're literally just, prototypes. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> just just make an entire season around sun and moon archetypes and the symbols mm-hmm. of sun and moon. But I don't know that I could add any more to what Raphael has already given us. So, Tori. Tell people where they can find us if they're looking for us. Well, guys, you can get a hold of us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send your book reports. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can also follow us on the socials. On the socials. On the medias. On the medias. That's a blind spotting reference. <laughs> if you guys have watched the movie, which you're supposed to. Uh, you can follow us on the medias at Skeleton Keys Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find us personally. I am Tori Yatesor. That's T O R R I. Y-A-T-E-S-O-R-R. That's on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm on Twitter at John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R, or on Instagram at Telling a Better Story. We will see you next time on Skeleton Keys. <laughs>